from Pacifica Radio in San Francisco. This is Flashpoints. I'm Dennis Bernstein. Today on the show, we speak to 48 Hills editor Tim Redman about the Newsom recall vote, about PG&E, and the multiple impacts of the fires. Also, a noted Latino leader warns that Newsom may be able to beat back the recall, but 2022 may be a very different story. And our regular segment, Food Fight on Food and Justice with Keith McHenry returns. All this coming up straight ahead on Flashpoints. Stay with us. And you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. My name is Dennis Bernstein. This is your daily investigative news magazine. We broadcast across the country from the San Francisco Bay Area over the Pacifica Radio Network, KPFA, right here in the Bay. And we begin with that. Have you heard about that uh, recall election that Gavin Newsom is being challenged, apparently by a maniac, uh, but nevertheless, people are worried, and they should be. And we're going to be talking about that with Tim Redman. He's the editor of 48 Hills. That's a wonderful uh, journal report uh, in the Bay Area, uh, edited by Tim Redman, who also was formerly the editor of the San Francisco Bay Guardian. Tim, welcome back to flashpoints. Dennis, I'm always happy to be on your show. We're always glad to have you. Well, let's start uh, with the numbers and then let's go to the content. It, it looks like uh, Newsom uh, has opened up a substantial lead. Are you worried? Well, I'm still worried, yes. And I'm worried um, for two reasons. One, a lot of people don't even know there's an election going on, despite the millions of dollars in ads and all the outreach they've been trying to do. This is a September election. We don't have September elections in California. So I think a lot of people are, it, it's flying under the radar for some people. Um, and, you know, I'm still worried about the enthusiasm gap. They've, doing a, they've been doing a better job. They've been doing better outreach, and they've been, you know, warning people what could happen if Newsom is recalled. But, you know, um, there's, the Republicans care about recalling Newsom more than the left cares about keeping him. And, um, and that's been a problem all along. I, I, you know, I'm just worried about voter turnout. But if voter turnout it goes as expected, and there's been a lot of people who have already turned in their um, vote-by-mail ballots, way more Democrats than Republicans, I think he'll probably be okay. Um, if he is, though, and this is the important thing, if Newsom survives this recall, and I, I think he probably will, doesn't mean you, if you haven't voted yet, don't be confident. If you haven't voted yet, whatever your position is on this, please, you can still mail in your ballot. You can also drop it off at any polling place. You can still vote in person. right? So don't get overconfident. Whatever your position on this is, vote. But I think if Newsom survives, he's going to have to look around and say, hey, yes, big corporations provided the money to pay for the TV ads, but it's the grassroots and the progressive organizations and labor, particularly labor, that has done the work of the grassroots organizing and to get out the vote. And if he survives this recall, it will be because of that. And he can't forget that. He's got to remember, for the remaining 14 months of his term as governor, and if he wants to run again as governor, he's got to remember that you can't just write the progressives off and assume that they're with you, because they will have saved him if he had survived this recall. I was uh, just speaking with Keith McHenry of Food Not Bombs before we got on the air, and he was thinking that uh, uh, they could have probably fed all the homeless in Santa Cruz for what it cost for that French dinner without the mask that Newsom thought uh, he could attend. Yeah, I mean, Newsom has always had a problem with both aloofness 
and feeling like the rules don't apply to him. I'm richer, I'm more important, I'm the governor. I don't have to live the same way you do. I can hire a private tutor for my kids, so I don't have to worry about the schools being open. And, you know, I can afford to go to the French Laundry and have a very expensive meal, so I don't really have to follow the rules that says no one else is opposed to. This has been a problem throughout his career, and, and that is, I think, the driving force in the recall. Um, that's what I think got people really, really angry. And, of course, there are some Republicans, some hardcore Republicans, who don't like mask mandates, and they don't like vaccine mandates, and they're all angry about this. And, um, you know, they're always going to be there. But I think it was the idea that Newsom wants everyone else to follow rules that he doesn't have to follow that got the recall really going. All right, let's do, put your professor's cap on, and let's do a compare and contrast. Uh, Elder uh, versus Newsom, are there any places where they uh, agree, and how would you distinguish the differences? Well, um, Larry Elder believes the minimum wage should be zero. There should be no minimum wage. Um, He really doesn't seem to believe in science. He is against mask and vaccine mandates. Um, He doesn't believe that climate change is something that human beings need to do something immediate about. He reluctantly acknowledges that it's happening and maybe human beings played a role, you know, but he isn't going to take any steps. I mean, Newsom was way too slow to ban fracking in California and to recognize that to save the planet, oil and gas has to stay in the ground. But he's coming around and he at least doesn't acknowledges that global climate change is real and it's caused by human beings. Um, You know, Newsom... To his credit, and I, you know, Dennis, you know me, and I know you, and you know that I have not, never been a fan of Gavin Newsom, not when he was on the Board of Supervisors, not when he was mayor, not when he was lieutenant governor, not when he's governor, but <laughs> he has recognized that it's going to take a lot of state money to address homelessness, and he's put up $12 billion in the state budget for that. So, you know, he's recognizing that these are crises that we have to deal with, and Elder just um, is a, I mean... I'm not going to say right, because it's beyond right and left. I was going to say he's to the right of Trump. I don't think, I think at that scale, when we're out there at that level of lunacy, it's not even a question of right or left. Um, so, you know, in a sense, the entry of Larry Elder into the race has given Gavin Newsom a foil. It's given him someone who he can say, if it's not me, it's going to be this person, and this person is absolutely horrible. So, and I think that a lot of voters are responding to that. He, he, he sort of, it feels like he's willing to say anything if it sort of feels like it might work for him. Of course, he's now jumped on the uh, don't believe the elect- election results. Uh, yes. I'm wondering if that has any glue here in, the, uh, in California. I don't think so. Oh, there'll be some, I mean, there'll be some people who say, you can't trust the election results. It was a fraud. Newsom cheated. You know, Trump will probably say that. And there are, I mean, there are Californians who voted for Donald Trump. There's a significant number of Californians who voted for Donald Trump, and I'm sure they'll say the same thing. But I don't think it's going to get statewide traction. Well, it's frightening. Right now, I guess there's about a 16 or 17 point uh, distinction between the two. We're going to watch it very closely. Obviously, tomorrow is Election Day. Any sense of where it is right now? There's been a lot of voting already. Yes, that's the good news. The good news is that a lot of people have already turned in their ballots. And the good news is the state, once again, mailed out ballots to everybody. You know, and we're finding, actually, that that's a good practice. That increases turnout significantly. Um, Oregon has been doing uh, all-mail ballots for at least 10 years, and it really does increase turnout. We're talking about, in San Francisco, the Board of Supervisors is talking about mandating that ballots get mailed to every single voter. So I think if we were not doing that, if this were a standard, you've got to go to the polls ballot, 
Newsom would be in a lot more trouble. So, you know, we've seen weird things happen in California politics. I am not calling this one as over. And again, the, the, the polls show Newsom with a wide lead, but that requires all those people to actually vote. Weird things have happened, like uh, a guy by the name of Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, got rid of a Democrat. Uh, it was another time, but it certainly is an example of what could happen. Yep, and it's an example of how weird the recall rules are. All right, um, everywhere. I mean, we can talk about this now or another time, but there's also two potential recalls going on in San Francisco for the DA and the school board. And in San Francisco, if the district attorney is recalled, there's no second box. Who do you want to replace him? The mayor decides that. The mayor appoints the, um, the, the new district attorney, which is problematic in itself. In California, we have this weird second question, and it's a plurality, not a majority. I mean, Larry Elder could win with 20% of the vote. Right? And, you know, a lot of people are saying, okay, if we're going to do recalls like this, and if we're going to reform the process, if the governor is recalled, the lieutenant governor should take over. I mean, if the governor dies or gets elected president or whatever, the lieutenant governor takes over. Why wouldn't that be the case after a recall? So these are really old and weird rules. Tim, let's spend a moment. That's an important uh, thing going on in terms of the district attorney of San Francisco, a very special uh, kind of person who has really transformed, begun to transform that system. Uh, And you said, uh, are you suggesting that the mayor would support the recall and pick somebody who we might not like as much? The mayor has said nothing about the recall. She has not come out against it. She hasn't endorsed it. I don't think she, I mean, it would be, um, I think, very politically dangerous for her to endorse it, but she has not opposed it. And a lot of other elected officials in San Francisco have opposed the recall. You know, Chester Boudin did exactly what he said he was going to do. He ran on a platform of reform, and he has been a reformer. He, you know, you cannot say that he misled the voters or he got elected doing what he, I mean, he, he got elected with promises, and he's carried out those promises. Now, the mayor supported another candidate, and if my opinion, if she wants to support a different candidate, she should help that candidate run again in two years, right? And, and we, that's why we have regular elections. So she hasn't said anything. But I think it's pretty clear that if Chesa Boudin were recalled, she would put in a candidate more to her liking, which means someone who is not as much of a reformer, someone who is much more kind of a traditional prosecutor. And Chase Boudin has made a lot of people angry because he is, has a different vision for criminal justice. He's not a public defender. He's the DA. Yes, he has made people angry, but a lot of what they're angry about is either wrong or um, something that he had no control over. I mean, a lot of these stories you see in the Chronicle about, oh, Chesa Boudin let someone out of jail and he went and committed another horrible crime. In virtually all of those cases, Chesa Boudin had nothing to do with letting the person out of jail. A person was released pre-trial without bail at the, um, by the authority of a superior court judge, um, who use, they use an algorithm to determine whether somebody is likely to show up for trial. I, in some of these cases, Chester Boudin actually wanted the person held until trial, and the judge disagreed. And let's face it, for most of the past year, there's been no courtrooms. We haven't been, he hasn't been able to prosecute even serious crimes, and neither have DAs, in, uh, neither is the Alameda County DA, because the courtrooms were shut down because of COVID, and you can't do a murder trial by Zoom. The law doesn't allow it. You can't do that. So we're only now slowly starting to get courtrooms reopened. So all of these things that, you know, that, that they're blaming Boudin for are happening in other counties, too. 
And uh, we have to mention that his dad is a storied, uh, you know, sort of resistor, if you will, from the 1960s who ended up in jail for a long time uh, for committing a violent crime. He is still there. He um, is still in jail, um, and he may get his sentence reduced or commuted, But um, and there's a chance of that. But yes, he spent a lot, and so did uh, his mom. I mean, he grew up with both of his parents incarcerated for the first 20 years of his life. So, you know, it is, there is something to having a DA who can say, before you lock someone up in a cage for life or for 25 years, you should understand what that's like for their family. Yes. You're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. We are delighted to be speaking with Tim Redman. He's the editor of 48 Hills. You need to check that out if you haven't. He's the former editor of the San Francisco Bay Guardian, which was head and shoulders above the weeklies across the country. Uh, and let's turn our attention to the fires and the impact uh, of the fires. Uh, for, give us a sense of where that is now. Uh, are they, they have any of these fires under control? Where is that at the moment? Well, some of the fires are under control more than they were before. Um, obviously, as we all know, South Lake Tahoe was not devastated. They managed to protect that town, but other towns around it were. Um, the, the thing is, we're still in peak fire season. Right? We've got another month or two before fire season ends, and already we've seen all this devastation. And obviously, part of it is the result of human-caused climate change and the drought resulting from that. Um, part of it is the result of Pacific Gas and Electric Company not taking care of and maintaining its power lines um, because you don't make any profit by maintaining your power lines. And, and actually, in one instance, it was proved in court that money that was supposed to go for tree trimming went instead for executive bonuses, right? Because PG&E is a private company. It's all about the bottom line. They're about making a profit. And maintaining power lines is expensive. So we have seen a pattern of this not happening. I, you know, one of the things that I would hope Gavin Newsom will think about after all of these fires, if he survives the recall, is that Pacific Gas and Electric Company really can't continue to function as a private company of the size that it is. It needs to be broken up and turned over to public agencies. It needs to be broken up into five different parts. And, you know, uh, East Bay Mud could take over part of it. San Francisco can create a public power agency. We already have one more or less in place that could take over part of it. SMUD could take over part of it in the Sacramento area. Uh, this, this, this system that we have right now of a giant private company, um, profit-making company providing power in Northern California obviously isn't sustainable. It doesn't work anymore. And, and it is interesting to see uh, Southern California is not PG&E. Uh, how, does, how do those ratepayers and uh, those folks uh, um, benefit from having a different kind of structure? Well, in all the research that I've done, as you know, I've been doing this research for more than 30 years. In all of the research that I've done, every public power agency in Northern California has cheaper rates and more reliable service. Everyone. Cheaper rates and more reliable service. And, you know, public power agencies, like SMUD, for example, are more likely to put money into undergrounding lines and trimming trees because it's a public agency. And number one, the voters decide who's on their board. Right? And number two, they're not out to make a profit at the end of the day. So I think that that's what we're going to have to see. Um, I mean, it's just, it's, it makes so much logical sense. And for years, you couldn't even talk about this because PG&E was such a powerful lobby. But I think these days, PG&E... It's become a much less powerful lobby, and I think that people all over the state are saying, you know, we, enough with this. So I'm hoping they, that one of the, out of these tragedies, some reform. Have they, 
ever been held uh, criminally accountable for the fires they've started and the people they've killed? Oh, yes. In several court hearings, in several rulings, they've been held criminally accountable. But the corporation is criminally accountable, and they have to pay a fine. No PG&E executive has ever gone to jail. Not that I'm in favor of putting people in jail, as you know, Dennis. Neither of us is big on incarcerating anybody. Nevertheless, no executive has ever been held criminally liable. Amazing. Amazing. Now, in terms of the fires, uh, you've been doing some reporting about uh, and so have we about the impact on prisoners uh, who are stuck in these prisons uh, where the fires are burning. Uh, and there seems to be n- not much concern about what's going to happen if uh, some of these fires overtake the prison. There, there are, I understand there are um, uh, plans to get the guards out and the administrators out, but the prisoners, they're, they're a different story. Well, it's interesting, you know, and I, I did this. I am not a, uh, I'm not an expert in this type of technology, but if you eyeball it, if you look at the areas in California on a map that have highest fire risk, the high fire risk zones, and you overlay that with a map of California prisons, it's a pretty good match. Many of these prisons are in high fire risk zones, and as far as I can tell, and as far as others who have researched this can tell, there is no comprehensive plan for evacuations in the event of wildfires of California prisons, particularly today. One of the prisons that we, I was looking at in, in Jamestown, um, the prison in Jamestown has at least 40 active COVID cases, at least as of a few days ago when I spoke to a prisoner there. There's at least 40 active COVID cases. The California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation doesn't have places for those prisoners to go in other prisons because they don't want to bring people with active COVID into other prisons because it will spread and there's not enough room. What do you do if the fire and, and the, the prisoner I spoke to said the fire was about five miles away, we could smell it and see the ashes. Uh, the, the PIO for the prison said, no, it was more like 10 miles away. Either way, these things move fast. I, they, I mean, they, they, this is a, a terrifying prospect. Imagine these prisoners are terrified of getting COVID and dying anyway. Their medical care is practically non-existent. And now there's a fire nearby and nobody knows where they're going to go. Another prisoner I spoke to down in, uh, Los Angeles, in the Los Angeles area said, yeah, they, they have fire drills here. And in the fire drills, they evacuate the guards and the staff. And what happens to the prisoners? They get locked down? Yeah, they get locked down. I mean, this is what I have not been there myself but this is what one of the prisoners i spoke to said goes on that you know there's no comprehensive plan for evacuating prisoners and and there really has to be because again i encourage people to do this themselves you can get a map of the high fire danger areas in california on the web and then you can get a map of all of the prisons and just you know if i had a gis expert i'd have them do this for 48 hills if anyone's out there wants to do it for me it's actually scary Amazing. And uh, it, it is, uh, again, troubling that on the one hand, uh, the prisoners may, may be left in there if the fire gets too bad. They're already choking, my, is my understanding. Uh, but it's, it's also the case that some of these prisoners end up fighting the fires, putting their life on the line as a, a way of uh, sort of like a temporary escape. Uh, it's sort of troubling. Absolutely. It is troubling. However, I will say that the state has changed the rules. It used to be, Dennis, the thing that was crazy is it used to be these firefighters go out and take some of the most dangerous jobs in firefighting on the front lines, putting their lives on the risk to fight fires. And then a year or two later, they finish their sentence and they can't get a job as a firefighter because they have a record. 
And that was one of the most frustrating things. Imagine spending five years as a California firefighter every fall going out and risking your life to save people, um, you know, who you don't know and who, you know, and the state's got you locked up. And then you get out and you're trained as a firefighter. And you can't get a job because you have a criminal record. Fortunately, this, the state legislature has just changed that. So now inmates who are trained as firefighters who get out of their, uh, finish their sentences, are allowed to apply for a job as firefighters. How much do prisoners get paid for fight, risking their lives and fighting fires while they're still uh, imprisoned? Almost nothing. You know that prison labor, they get paid. Dennis, I don't know the exact amount, but you and I both know prison labor is, you know, pennies on the dollar of what it should be. Absolutely, it's, they get paid almost nothing. And I think a lot of them volunteer for this, in part because they think, wow, this is job training, and in part because it's so awful in the prison. It's like this is it, going and fighting a fire is a, is, is a way out. Is it a, you know, is more fighting a fire on the front lines is, is not as bad as being locked in a prison, particularly when there's a fire nearby. And finally, let me flip over to the COVID. How is California doing? How is San Francisco doing in terms of, speaking of fighting fires, fighting COVID? Well, the good news is that I believe that more than 80% of the people in the state of California have received at least one vaccine. And um, I think it's even higher in San Francisco and in the East Bay. And that's really good. And that's why our hospitals are not overwhelmed. The, the, but however... There's still 20% who haven't, and there are still parts of California where people are refusing to get vaccines, refusing to wear masks, um, you know, saying that this isn't a, a, a major problem, and then they're getting sick and dying. And when they get sick, they're taking up room in hospitals that other sick people can't get. Um, and, you know, I, I, it's terrible to say that one sick person deserves something more than another, but the fact is the vaccine is safe and effective. And if you get the vaccine, you are very, very unlikely to become so sick that you get hospitalized. And, you know, um, the, the, the idea that there's still 20 percent of California that hasn't done that remains alarming. And there are some communities where the vaccination rate is very low. You know what? It's seeing, amazing. Go on. Go on, please. We haven't. This hasn't hit us yet, but it could. In, um, in Washington state, a lot of hospitals are getting inundated with COVID patients from Idaho. Because Idaho has no mask or vaccine mandates, and there's a lot of unvaccinated people who are getting sick, and there's no room in the hospitals in Idaho, so they're they're running into they're going to Washington State. So Washington is feeling the influx of that, even though they have pretty good uh, vaccination rules. Amazing. All right, we're going to leave it right there. Tim Redman, editor of Forty Eight Hills. We appreciate uh, the good information. Please stay safe. Yes, you too, Dennis, and thank you for having me on your show. Sure, anytime. And you are listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. Let's take a couple of minutes and listen to some uh, wonderful music provided by our engineer, technical director, and my hero, Mike Biggs. Bye. 
listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. We broadcast every weekday from the San Francisco Bay Area over the Pacifica Radio Network. And we broadcast out of the San Francisco Bay Area. And we are happy to have you along. Just a couple of uh, notes about coming up programming, uh, programming coming up, I should say. On Friday, we're going to be speaking with Oliver Stone, uh, Academy Award winning filmmaker who's got a wonderful autobiography out. And uh, we have had a chance to spend some time with Oliver. We're, we're delighted uh, that he's got the book out uh, and that uh, we're going to be able to talk to him on Friday. Uh, that means a lot to us. Um, also, uh, we're going to be continuing uh, to report on uh, a number of key issues that have to do with abortion rights, reproductive rights, Many of you might not know, but I did write a book. I, I mentioned this before, but this story and this struggle is so crucial. What's going on in Texas is so crucial uh, that uh, w- we must uh, pay attention. I did write a book back a while ago, and it's called Henry Hyde's Moral Universe. It's not in print. I'm not selling the book. Uh, but for that book, I worked with... Uh, uh, former senior producer Leslie Kane, and we did an exhaustive investigation of Henry Hyde. Remember the late Henry Hyde? He's the one that led the prosecution of Bill Clinton uh, in terms of the sex scandal. Uh, he was the moralist uh, that the, he was the prosecutor you know, the eloquent, articulate prosecutor who was going after Bill Clinton because it was just right. You know, it was unacceptable. Of course, this is the same Henry Hyde who, you know, um, on Friday nights, he's hanging out with his girlfriend. On Saturday nights, it's another one. On Sunday, he goes to church with his wife. Uh, A real uh, piece of work. Uh, But he did create the Hyde Amendment. Uh, That was that amendment that forbade money going uh, from... uh, federal coffers to support women's rights, women's choice, abortions. He created a great deal of suffering in that regard, and uh, we tracked him down. Uh, We, for instance, uh, Leslie interviewed one of his girlfriends. Uh, We we were investigating whether, in fact, the great anti-abortionist had actually maybe paid for an abortion. We could never nail that down. Uh, But we had some pretty interesting information. He certainly uh, was surrounded by people who had uh, their idea of women's rights was women having the right to stay in the kitchen, follow orders for men, and uh, do whatever they needed at any given moment. I remember Henry Hyde. We went to Chicago a couple of times, and we went on speaking tours there. We actually went into his home district. Uh, where we were speaking about his various contradictions. Uh, We were even, we had the pleasure of being threatened in his home district uh, there in Chicago. Uh, I mentioned this uh, on the air, I think before, uh, that we were giving a lecture in a church uh, in, I guess it was South Chicago, uh, and... uh, just as uh, Leslie began to speak, all the lights went off in the church, and then they, we, the church was essentially surrounded. Uh, a whole bunch of uh, anti um, um, folks who were 
definitely anti-choice. Were dangerous, started screaming at us, yelling at us. They had to sneak us out the back door. We had to hightail it out of there uh, because this is a very violent movement. And I am very worried that once these two uh, movements, the anti-vaxxers and the anti-abortionists get together, that is a dangerous synergy. So I'm very concerned about uh, that part of this movement and what's going on uh, in Texas. So you are listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to be speaking with Francisco Molina. Let's hear some music, and uh, we'll be back. Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. We're going to invite Keith McHenry, the founder of Food Not Bombs, back on the air. Keith, uh, welcome back to Flashpoints. It's uh, good to have you with us. We haven't spoken for a long time. What are your thoughts on... uh, I know you're not uh, a fan of Gavin Newsom, and uh, we sort of agree that that uh, meal at the... uh, that unmasked meal at the French Laundry there could have fed uh, most of the homeless in Santa Cruz for at least one day. Um, but give us your thoughts on the recall. I- I'm thinking you're not supporting Larry Elder. Yeah, well, the, I, yeah, I'm not really uh, that excited about um, the prospect of there being a, a replacement. But I think the thing that most concerns me is is this policy of the lesser of two evils forever voting, which is, um, you know, the particularly California has been stuck in because we, you know, I remember we were first being arrested for feeding the hungry by um, Art Agnos. Um, that's when Feinstein and uh, Pelosi that's were in San Francisco. In You're talking San Francisco. San Francisco. Yes. Yeah. 1988. Uh, so they uh, they had failed homeless policies in 1988, and they have not gotten that any better. And I think that it would be, you know, from my perspective, I, I think it's good to vote um, for the recall just to send a message that you know, put some fear into the Democratic Party, um, if nothing else. Because at this point, you know, uh, you know, I see that um, you know the Democrats have perfected what I call rule by headline. And so there'll be these announcements of these, uh, you know, huge, like, for instance, uh, Newsom signed a historic housing and homeless funding package as part of a $100 billion California comeback plan. But then you don't see any, all you see is the headline. You read the fine print and you actually live it on the streets and you don't really see the outcome. Um, You know, we spend uh, $100 million here in Santa Cruz on homelessness, yet there is a virtually nothing to show for it. There was, I think, 117 people. Uh, uh, um, you said a- 100 million, 
hundred million dollars in this town or in this county on homelessness. And you start to look, you know, you look into the budget and there was a, um, one situation where it was like $2.5 million for, uh, youth homelessness. Well, I know a lot of youth that live on the streets and they didn't see anything from that. And what we have for it is, you know, uh, Newsom had that operation room key and it was supposed to be, and, and it was all like touted that you could, you know, local governments, counties could acquire hotels and, and put, start putting people up or, or there was a case where in San Francisco they spent what sixty one thousand dollars per uh, little place on the, uh, you know, in, in a uh, parking lot with a tent, um, you know. So the, basically, what we see is a lot of throwing money at nonprofit organizations, what we call the uh, um, homeless industrial complex, with very little results, and um, and, and and it's. You know, the solution, as Paul Bowden, a dear friend of mine, points out, uh, he uh, helped start the San Francisco Coalition of the Homeless, and he's with uh, RAP right now, is that the solution to homelessness is a home. And we have Democratic leaders in this state, of which Gavin Newsom is one of them, that are heavily invested in property speculation. And... There is a direct link between that and the fact that nothing, that the homeless crisis isn't solved. We could also see, for example, um, what is it, like over $85 million into the, you know, say, Gavin Newsom campaign, and um, or $83 million. And, but are people putting, you know, they're not, people aren't put, um, pressuring him to actually solve these problems. He just, gives a lot nice headline that a bunch of stuff is going to happen and then nothing happens. And, um, you know, Pelosi, for instance, has a lot of power in this state. I haven't seen her actually um, campaign for Gavin Newsom. The people that are campaigning for him seem to be like um, Elizabeth Warren, Kamala Harris, you know, people from other states. But it's very interesting that the local state politicians seem to be a little bit quiet about it. And I'm sure they want um, him to stay in power. But I wonder if the reason is that they don't want the voters to be, you know, point out that this has been a failed state as long as the Democratic Party has controlled it. And that to highlight that by having more local Democrats uh, stumping for Gavin in a very pu- public way, like Warren, as uh, Elizabeth Warren has been doing, or um, you know the uh, you know AOC and so on, um, it, they know that that would be a danger because they you know it's okay for people out of state to talk about keeping him as governor because they're not impacted by the fact that. We have the half of all homeless people live in our state. It's growing rapidly. The chaos on the streets is getting much, much worse. I can't, I have, I've had more people that I'm close to or know who have died on the streets from either fentanyl overdoses or from, um, you know, from, uh, you know, not being able to get into hotels and therefore dying on the streets, even though they were in a, a weakened situation with heart attacks and strokes and so on, um, than I ever have seen. And this has been in the last couple of months. And, um, you know, so that none of, there is no real plan 
by the federal government, by the state of California, by our county, to resolve, to deal with the fact that we're about to get possibly millions more people moving onto the streets. There's no legislation to uh, keep people from being evicted. Um, There's no legislation to slow the housing foreclosures crisis. And I think that's largely due to the fact that the Democratic Party's um, campaign money comes from the National Association of Realtors, comes from hedge funds who are investing in all this property and who are just perfectly happy to um, have people foreclose so they can pick up their properties. But there's no like program where, okay, we're going to have massive amounts, of, like all the vacant units in the state be made available for people to live in. And now the other thing that I'm concerned about with Gavin Newsom is he kind of toned down his uh, obligation to accept shelter thing that his that Mayor Steinberg, his uh, homeless czar, is pushing in Sacramento. And um, there, you know, to be um, you know kind about the possibility of that law, we could see that uh, New York City has a similar law, and they did put a lot of people in hotels before COVID. Although if you go to New York City, go to Manhattan, you see thousands and thousands of people living outside still. Um, so it's not really a, a real solution. And uh, and I'm worried that Gavin Newsom will come back with that. And that, we, and that that's why, um, I, really, at the bottom line, I think they want millions of people to move onto the streets so that the chaos is so intense and it's clearly a lot more heroin meth and and fentanyl and stuff on the streets in the last few months so that the thing becomes such a crazy psycho mad max situation that the good americans will go wow do whatever you can to round these people up and put them in some kind of camp we can't deal with it because otherwise what is the plan it just seems like it's to terrorize the homeowners and and tenants who feel secure in their housing uh, to demand a police state to deal with the crisis. Otherwise, you know, we've got billions of dollars um, funneled into nothing. We look at $40 billion in in, uh, rent relief and landlords won't take the money and instead they're selling their properties to hedge funds. You know, so, you know, either they're so inept or They've got some strategy that is even more frightening than I think most Americans would be willing to entertain at this point. And I, I want to close a little with that. I have a friend that just came to visit me at the Food Not Bombs meal. She survived a displaced persons camp in Nazi Germany after the war. And she came to tell me that she is just shaking with the horror of what she's seen and how it reminds her of her childhood now. So uh, that's... Uh, only one of a couple of such friends that I have who are very worried about the direction of the state and of the country. So let, let me, last we left you, there was a, um, you know, there was a, uh, a sort of last minute decision to keep uh, the program for uh, paying uh, for uh, rents uh, to avoid eviction. We heard that was a, uh, a temporary success. Did it have an impact? Were uh, people given a little leeway? W- w- where is that now? Okay, so what I, I understand with, um, you know, so there there is the Operation Room Key with about 150 to 200 people, of which most of them are still scrambling 
for housing. Um, they were given rent subsidies, but they were also told that they have they themselves had to find the housing and they had to find it before they were evicted. So um, there's like uh, what the fifteenth. A lot of people are being forced out. A bunch of people are forced out on the third, and you can see the camps are growing and growing as a direct result. So um, that was uh, the operation. Room key money dried up. And then there was supposed to be this uh, additional money, but every single person, the only people that I found know who got housing out of that program actually were quite able-bodied and went out and got it themselves. Their case managers, uh, housing for uh, um, health, um, nobody, you know, housing matters, the different programs in town were essentially just handed them a list of phone numbers and they themselves had to, to, to deal with it. And most people I think don't even qualify even, uh, sadly, uh, as, re- uh, you know, under these programs anyway, but the, you know, it's kind of a false hope that they've been given. And this, and the really upsetting thing is when a person gets housing that gets everybody else in that hotel all excited, Oh, maybe we're going to get housing. And then after a while they you know, become despondent and depressed because it, it turned out that was just the lucky person and it wasn't really a program that, that helped everybody. Um, now, with the rent subsidies, it seems like there's a still $40 million, billion unspent. I know quite a number of people here in Santa Cruz who tried to take advantage of that, but their landlords actually would not accept the money. So the money goes directly to the landlords. The landlords have to cooperate with the, with the program. And in many cases, the landlords just decided they, you know, they weren't going to do their half of the, of the um, deal. And therefore, they were just like forced out. So I think that's a huge problem. I'm not sure where that $40 billion ultimately is going to end up. And um, I know there's promises now of, of legislation to get another nine, $90 billion for affordable housing. But our experience here in Santa Cruz is that no one can afford the affordable housing. So it's just like kind of a term that is used to give it's part of that. Uh, rule by headline ideology, which is you say there's going to be all this money for affordable housing. As it turns out, it just becomes housing that is owned by, um, you know, by corporations. And it doesn't ultimately lead to people getting off the street. And um, so I'm, that's that's where that is going. And it's uh, just let me jump in here, Keith. Uh, we we just uh, apparently uh, the United States just uh, pulled out of Afghanistan, uh, ending a war that was costing, according to the president, <clears throat> was costing three hundred million dollars a day. Three hundred million dollars a day. Let's just say Santa Cruz got three hundred and three hundred million dollars for the next five days. In a row, would that help? Well, if it did, if it went to um, some kind of a system that actually was transparent and not corrupt, um, that w- could potentially help. But our problem here is that no one allow a, even affordable housing to be built near them. There's this uh, whole, you know, there is just no place to. You, the government just has to tell the homeowners, "Look, at, we're going to build these buildings, and people are going to move into them." And they were homeless before they moved into the building. And now that they're in the building, they're no longer homeless. So just suck it up. And um, 
you know, but people, oh my God, you know, we're going to have homeless people. The, the anti-homeless hysteria and the demonization and the, um, you know, that's been systematic for decades uh, has had an impact in trying to solve this problem. So we actually have um, uh, Santa Cruz um, Neighborhood Solidarity that we started which is a coalition of all the people concerned about homeless people in, in Santa Cruz. And we're trying to go door to door and to have this campaign where we're saying, look, we have to deal with the fact that the homeless population in Santa Cruz is going to double this winter. And it doesn't help us just to be like, you know, going out and trying to get everybody arrested and those kind of things that are typically what's going on here, that we actually have to start living with our neighbors in a, in a compassionate way. And and our problem is that there, like I say, there's a hundred million dollars that comes into the county, and it just gets absorbed by large salaries of administrators, and and all kinds of things that ultimately like case managers. So the whole system is broken. When you're a case manager, you get this thing called the um, um, you know V. Um, what's it called? Vulnerability Index and Service Prioritization Decision Assistance Tool. And in no way, none of the questions there are about you not being able to pay your rent because your salary is too low. That should be number one. It's about what there's an assumption that you're mentally ill, you're a drug addict, you're an alcoholic, and that the, you're, you know, and, that, and there's nothing, you know, we're going to have to find out how trashed you are before we can get you into a place. And then they never really, you know, get you into a place. They get 100 people a year. For this $100 million into housing, and 48% of those people don't make it through the first uh, 12 months because of conflicts with landlords. So that um, that's not a very good track record for that $100 million. Um, mostly they've been buying tents. If you, the actually only thing that is fun, that somebody can actually grasp onto as being something real is a is a occasional tent provided by the county clandestinely by health workers who have to do it without anybody knowing that they're doing it. So that you know, it's a there has to be a, a, a realization that the people living outside are the people that built our country. And many of my friends that live outside actually were injured on the job building many of the buildings here. But, you know, others, I have a dear friend who was an emergency room nurse for a long time. And whatever happens with people's lives, you know, it's we're, we're workers that are having a difficult time just hanging on. And I think this um, housing foreclosure crisis, combination eviction crisis, um, the tension and the anxiety in the air of low-income Americans is 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 incredible it's amazing there's not more like violence and stuff than there is considering how such a dire situation um you know we are still finding you know they're towing cars ticketing cars as and in what they're calling operation um west side story which is where a lot of homeowners that really hate the homeless in santa cruz live and there's a bunch of industrial areas where unhoused people are living in their vehicles so this city has a, uh, a police um, unit that does nothing but ticket those homeless people in those cars until they can't register their vehicles so they can tow them. And they run a huge publicity campaigns and social media and so on about wonderful this is. And those people come to Food Not Bombs and ask us for the tent that they uh, know that we 
from going by and I have to keep going down to big five and buying more tents and and, and then we have to you know shepherd them to a little area of grass near the river or near you know san lorenzo park or whatever because no other places are safe and usually the night after a bunch of toes you can go downtown and see people in their sleeping bags or blankets in doorways up and down the streets because they've not yet you know my you know they haven't had the time to figure out where to set up their camp now what kind of a policy of a hundred million dollar county policy is does that make sense to put people intentionally take all their property, discard it, which is what happens. They tow it to a junkyard and a moss landing, and then you lose everything, and then you have to start all over. And at least you are safe in your car. And it's particularly tragic when it's older women, older single women. It's just it's heartbreaking. And and, and uh, I've had I just had a direct discussion. So I got ticketed for delivering food to the Benchlands, which is the camp that's there because of our our lawsuit to stop the uh, holiday evictions. And I deliver a huge van load of food, a pa- at least a pallet of food at a time, uh, once or twice a week, plus water down to there. And I got like, the, uh, you know, it's a $350 ticket plus the assessment and blah, 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 up to $500 or more for delivering food. So after court, and it turned out, I, you know, the court so backed up, and my next court appearance is February of 2022. Um, I talked, run into the chief of police who's been regularly now with the head of uh, development, um, uh, Larry Butler, down there and start talking to him about these kinds of things. Um, and they really don't have an answer. You know, I told them, you know, you can, you, you know, what, what are your plans for another um, 2,000, 3,000 people living here outside this winter? It's very unlikely that that will not happen unless some magical thing occurs between now and the and, and uh, the first of the year. And none of that, the, the governor, Newsom, has no plan whatsoever. Didn't have a plan really. Um, you know, they, they announce money. Who know, the money disappears into the homeless industrial complex. People don't get housing. They're you know they're ridiculed by their uh, you know they they hire young people that have no experience with homelessness who just have that kind of a Hollywood idea that they're just these uh, scruffy drug addict people out there that they just pull themselves up by their bootstraps we, they would be fine and that's the education that the caseworkers have and I know that from older caseworkers who have told me that plus I've uh, um, a couple of friends that are st- case managers now who are frustrated with their coworkers don't get what's going on and um you know and then it leads to nowhere and it, and case managers quit very quickly because they get frustrated because they might get 10 or 15 clients that they never provide any support for even though they're spending all day supposedly doing that because there is no what place for someone to go and I think right. that there's this no is there. Like, there is no there there. There's one other issue, Keith, that I want to hit with you. We're in COVID 4.0 now. Uh, yeah. This is a problem. How are they dealing it? Uh, dealing with it in Santa Cruz. I mean, one gets the feeling sometimes that the idea is to get rid of the people because they really want to become another playground for Silicon Valley. Yeah. 
Oh, yeah. Well, that, that you know, in the National Union of the Homeless, we hear that this is the case, sadly, everywhere. It's not just uh, here. Even Rochester, New York, of all things, is turning into a luxury, uh, you know, condo playground, which uh, completely doesn't, you know, having spent a lot of time in, in, in that area, it doesn't make any sense. I could kind of see that for Santa Cruz. It is a lovely place, and it, it does have Silicon Valley here. Um, so... Uh, but what the, you know, for the the, it's completely unclear what's going on even with their COVID programs here. <laughs> you know, the, there was a brief moment where they were going through the parks trying to give people uh, Johnson and Johnson vaccines, but there doesn't seem to be any follow up. There's no like actual. Um, it's not even clear what's ever even happened, and if that, how long that really did happen. It's also unclear. Um, you know. Basically, the whole thing is just like, okay, this is for the media to see that we do something. Now, the workers at, at Homeless Persons Healthcare Project, they are, um, you know, they want to do the best they can do. Um, I'm not faulting them. But they're just not provided, you know, the system is broken. My, my girlfriend works as a social worker, both here in Santa Cruz and in, in, in uh, Santa Clara. And it's just you know, she deals with homeless people all day, and she can hardly ever get anybody into any kind of system or program in either county, although she has a lot better luck in Santa Clara. You know, she at least can get somebody into something in Santa Clara. She can't, you know, help people here in Santa Cruz at all. Um, the other thing I wanted to point out about this uh, ending the war thing is really interesting. Um yeah, and the and the military budget. So Code Pink and Food Not Bombs and a bunch of groups. We have a hundred day campaign that we just started about defunding the Pentagon. So for example, HUD claims that for uh, twenty billion dollars you could end homelessness in America. That's the, on their website. I think that's probably inaccurate, but that's what they're saying. It probably would could be more. But they just like voted to increase the military budget twenty five billion dollars above. The already largest no 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 two hundred and twenty five billion dollars, Keith. Two hundred and twenty five billion up. Go on, sorry. Above we just have thirty the, oh seconds God, going. The one I was reading was twenty five billion. That's even much worse. That's crazy. So they could have ended homelessness like three times with the increase to military budget. So for like forty one years we've been saying all you have to do is make a few less nuclear bombs or one less aircraft carrier task force, you could end poverty in the country. But you don't see anybody doing that. That's like uh, incredible. And now the, the next thing I think is going to be very interesting is this new domestic terrorism bill. And you um, look at their, their um, publications that Homeland Security is putting out as animal rights activists, people that question uh, uh, capitalism, people that don't think that what the government is doing is, is working. You know, it's things like that. Sure, the um, you know, there's like, you know, white supremacist groups. That's, you know, I don't know if they need to be on the domestic terrorism list, but I'm not, I don't think we want to encourage them. But then you start looking at the FBI plots, you know, like the Food Up Bombs right. kids who have gone to prison were like framed by plots that they didn't even know were seriously listen keith i have to interrupt you here because we're out of time but we always appreciate hearing from you and the incredible work you do the organization is food not bombs thank you keith thank you dennis for having me on and foodnotbombs.net you can catch us there Bye -bye. Right, thank you